Star Trek Discovery Season 2, Episode 12, Through the Valley, is over. But we are just getting started here on Post Show Recaps. My name is Jessica Lease, and with me, as always, is the co-pilot in my pilotless shuttle, the one and only Mike Bloom. How you doing, Mike? I'm doing well, Jess. I definitely do not feel bound down by all the limitless possibilities of this episode. That is my auto antonym. It's on you, Lise. Let's see. Don't choke. Don't choke. Oh, are you ready to break this all down? Because I was hatched ready, fool. <laughs> that is... I, I love that we are getting more downtime moments with the crew, but that was... Even for Star Trek, that was a little nerdy, right? Like, that's totally... It reminds me of an episode of The Simpsons where Lisa makes a friend played by Winona Ryder, and her and her dad like to play that game where they take famous people's names and make anagrams out of them. Like, it feels like that level of nerdery, where you can tell everyone else in the cafeteria is kind of, like, side-eyeing these goofballs of, like, rarely they're occupying themselves with games around auto-antonyms. Yeah, but, you know... It really fits when you think about who watches Star Trek, Mike. I, I guess it is those that would sit around playing auto antonym games with their friends. Yeah. In other words, nerds. And I think it's always been a hallmark of the show. Like even when the people on Star Trek seemed like they were sort of cool, it was always you wanted to feel like you could picture yourself in with them. And now in the days when it's kind of socially OK to be a nerd and do nerd things. I think it's very much a testament to the era of of Star Trek we're in, that we can see people on a Star Trek show playing games that people in the early days would have turned off Star Trek at the end of this episode and sat down and played those very same games. Do you think Auto Antonyms with Friends is going to become a popular app anytime soon? Um, I think you're sitting on a gold mine, my friend. Uh, maybe like a bronze mine or like, I don't know, an aluminum <laughs> mine. I don't know if we're reaching gold status quite yet, but this, but this might have to be something I'll invest in if there's anyone looking to uh, to partner up with me on that. I'm willing to cede control over to any sort of uh, any sort of entity that's willing to take over the business side of things. I don't know if you want to open it up to all entities, because I feel like there's certain certain superpowers you really don't want to get in bed with yeah i mean listen if they're into certain things like needles and eyes maybe not but otherwise anything goes yep so i want to talk about before we really start to dig into the corneas of this episode with our needle oh, of <laughs> with our needle of, of audio with our with our nanobots of episode breakdownitude uh, I want to kind of take a more global view on things because you and I have not had an opportunity to talk about Star Trek in many, many weeks. Yeah, and it's been, it's been my wife has been a nice conduit through which we've spoken to each other, basically, Jess. <laughs> it's true. It's true. I feel like she's a very nice through line. And I I treasured the moments I had being able to talk things out with Angela just because she's such a huge fan of the series. And we just had a blast. But I feel like you and I have not gotten to talk about some of these huge high points that we have experienced lately because our jobs have sent us across the galaxy. But I really want to get your feelings about, you know, we found out who the Red Angel is. We found out sort of why some of this stuff is happening. And then we found some really crackpot theories about is are these nanites is control the proto Borg? And I want to know where you stand on that. Sure. So I guess starting a bit back, I can't remember if I talked about this last week with Angela, but when it came to, 
I guess when this season really started getting bananas, I think was around episode nine or 10 when we started getting into the area of it all. I thought it was interesting and, you know, a bit of a way for the show to nicely dust their hands off. And to the point that YouTube made said, well, maybe this is a reason why it takes until Dr. Noonien Sung to really approach this idea of artificial intelligence because they got rid of the only artificially modified person. But it was it was unfortunately it was a big moment, but they had to do a lot of tell to make up to that final show, if you know what I'm saying, where they spent that whole episode really filling us in on who this tertiary character is to really make the most of that funeral scene, the next episode, which I think it's interesting that they killed off a quote unquote main character. <laughs> but I don't know compared to like, you know, the big revelation that Jason Isaacs was a mirror universe counterpart all along and he ends up dying. It's, it's really tough to compare. I'm, I'm happy to talk about the red angel reveal now, especially that we saw the follow through in the previous episode, which I think warmed it up to me a bit more i'll admit i i had many many questions once we found out that okay the red angel was michael burnham's mother and they did the best job trying to not only explain it last episode but really sonia Sohn really brought in some of those emotional elements of not only the you know very strained relationship between the two the relationship with georgia which i absolutely love but, you know, the emotional effects that can come like with a being who time travels and sees everything being destroyed in the galaxy time after time after time. And it guides the discovery and the show discovery in a very interesting direction. It is very weird that, you know, Michael is sort of adapting to these revelations as of late. But this episode really feels like it's sort of reset back to finding the signals. I mean, they vocalize that as much. So... It sort of now is striding two different worlds where it's living in the beginning of season two. Hey, let's chase after these signals. What the hell are they? Because they still don't know who sent them. And then they still have one foot in the past few episodes, knowing all this information of this is what Control's trying to do. This is who the Red Angel is. And they're sort of mixing those two attitudes together to move forward into those last three episodes. Well, I think since it is... It is a season that's ultimately about jumping around in the timeline. I think that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, it's just interesting that it feels it's been a while since we've chased a signal. You know, when they were talking about the first three signals, I'm like, oh, yeah. Remember when that happened in the first like half of the season? And then we got, you know, distracted by a bunch of things. I thought it was an interesting place to go back to. And I don't know if I completely subscribe to Pike's theory that, oh, we have this time crystal. Surely the next three signals will be uh, an instruction guide as to how to utilize them. But I think that if we're approaching these signals now from a different perspective, knowing that these are not sent by the Red Angel, it makes things, I wouldn't say more mysterious, especially if it turns out that it's just, as we talked about last week, another Gabrielle Burnham from an even more futuristic timeline. But it does provide some further questioning and theories as to who that could possibly be. Yeah, that's very true. Although I feel like there was a point that you and Angela talked about last week that I was screaming at you guys, like from, you know, from an airplane over the Atlantic Ocean. <laughs> Maybe you heard me, but you were wondering like why there was a body of Gabrielle Burnham at the site where 
Michael Burnham's parents died and like that was never a thing that they wrapped up. And I'm just like, she jumps around in time. Clearly, the last episode of this season, she's going to go back to that moment again and die there. And she dies there anyway. Mm, it's very much the Time Zero episode from Next Generation when they yes. find Data's head at the cave. Yes, exactly. So she definitely dies there. She just did a lot of stuff in between her husband dying and her dying. That's true. That's true. Maybe if they take her to the uh, to the monastery on Boleth, maybe then she'll be able to turn back into young uh, Gabrielle Burnham. Then we'll have a crossover with the movie Little that is now out in theaters. <laughs> oh, dear. It, it could be a possibility. That's the, the one thing I'm worried about is this was a cool relationship, but... I don't know. I kind of like to keep getting to know our main cast. I don't know if we need to keep bringing people in as selfish as that is to say. So I really liked what she represented and what she currently represents in Michael's life in terms of now she has sort of a guiding post to get to. But that's actually a great theory. I could totally see in the last episode, they find Gabrielle Burnham. They're able to stop control, but it results in her death, which is why her body appears when control ends up finding her. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't remember exactly like what state of dead they are in when Michael Burnham's parents are discovered. I mean, but- I, I'm, they said that this, she was at least told they were killed by Klingons. So I'm at least imagining some nice batlet wounds. Yeah. Yeah. Or they could even like, I don't know, they if the bodies are definitely batlet up, they're not going to necessarily carbon date them or like try to figure out like, oh, this is a this is a female who's 35 to 38 years old. Like, if she's been floating around there for 20 years trying to correct the timeline, I don't know that that's something they're going to be checking for. It's not something they test for when they do an autopsy, right? Yeah, I'm assuming so, though. I guess the question is also, is Gabrielle Burnham aging naturally? As she's jumping around, because they said it's been, what, 24 years, 26 years, maybe? I'm not entirely, I don't remember what the exact year number was, but I'm wondering if she is naturally becoming older as she's jumping around to all these different time points, or if the suit is keeping her forever young. Yeah, it, it's hard to tell, because I know that, that when you're in the presence of time crystals, as we learned this episode, they can do some weird things to your aging. Yeah, or just like, I don't know, I guess the question is if... uh if Pike stepped out for a quick smoke and came back in, would Tenevik be decrepit and old? Would he be a skeleton by the time he came back in? What exactly is the ratio of minutes passed outside of the chamber to minutes passed inside the chamber? This is like watching Interstellar all over again. Yep, exactly. Like, uh, you know, Laurel's going to get a little ghost vibration behind her bookcase. and It's going to turn out that it's her son from another dimension. Yeah, I, I, that was the only thing I could think of that whole time. Like, I couldn't tell. And also, I think maybe it's just the role that you play, the keeping the time crystals. If that's your job, you age weirdly. Because I don't think, I was expecting like Captain Pike to go down there and like mess with the timeline and come back in like it's 10 years in the future or something. Yeah. Yeah. I could, I could see that as well. Like, he just sort of steps out and everything has passed. But I guess for the sake of the crystal, everything just sort of, froze or passed naturally i mean you have to assume because otherwise why would you sign up to be a guardian to immediately age so rapidly you know you have to imagine it's very short tenures for the guardian so maybe he's like you know a pretty mature adult one day and the next day he's going to be like five years old maybe it's just like gabrielle burnham you just jump around to random ages every day yeah that's true that's true and you know somebody could write a 
song parody about that. You get that one, uh, 23 for a moment. <laughs> yes, exactly. If we have the, I don't know what the Starfleet equivalent of the wand off would be. Uh, we, we need a popular character from, it could be the Spock off, maybe. <laughs> uh, I guess you could Brock out with your Spock out. Um, yeah. And listen, we had a little bit of singing back when uh, Tilly and Stamets were doing that nice little cortical implant, which, speaking of which, we were talking about all the gallivanting going on in the cafeteria. Uh, no Tilly this episode. Yeah. That feels like the first time in a long time that's happened. Yeah, where is Tilly? Like, maybe, yeah, did she go on a secret mission to hang out with their with her Juilliard classmate on the Klingon homeworld? Well, I'm wondering, maybe she got sent on the mission with uh, Georgiou, which might be its own little Short Treks episode coming up. <laughs> yeah, there's a Short Trek I would love to see, because I, I very much enjoyed, I enjoyed Tilly trying to be Killy, and I would watch that all day, every day. That would be fun as well, if we have, you know, Georgiou try to put Tilly through like the whole makeover montage of trying to get her into the Captain Killy mentality just to like toughen her up a little bit as they go searching for control. But yeah, or maybe she's receiving some long overdue therapy for all the trauma she's endured this entire season. But I, I thought it was a random, I mean, granted she sort of has just been randomly appearing in on the bridge after the whole mycelial network incident for the latter half of the season, but she was conspicuously absent there. Well, I, my guess here is that she was probably banished from the lunch table because she was probably better at that game than anybody else there. Mm, that is true. Uh, I guess, so she's banished. I'm assuming Colbert and Ash Tyler are banished because they'd assume it would break out into a fist fight. This seems like a very exclusive click the more we talk about it. Yeah, or maybe there's just another table across the cafeteria and they're like rival pub trivia teams. That's true. Well, we do know that Tilly and Saru like to hang out at lunch. So since Saru wasn't there, you can assume that Tilly might have been with him. Yeah, or maybe it's like, you know, in high school when you eat lunch in two different shifts. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I guess that would make sense as well. I mean, I guess the people that we see on the Bridge of Discovery, just like with any other show, that this is like our main shift, right? That they're not all pulling different shifts, that they just all happen to work together, go to the same classes, going back to your school comparison, and so they happen to eat lunch together. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, sometimes you're working with the same people. I, I guess they maybe, like, post the schedule every week, and you find out which shift you're on, and that's when you eat lunch, and that's when you go to work, and you're on the bridge with these people, but not these people. Maybe Tilly transformed into Jet Reno. Um, that could be. Uh, Jet Reno apparently has a new job as ship counselor. Listen, I don't think I love Jet Reno. I don't know if she's a great ship's counselor, <laughs> considering the just she did not have a light touch when approaching Stamets as he was longing looking at his partner with whom he has a very complicated history to be like, yeah, you should get over it. Like, you're fine. You're just, it's been, what, three weeks? Buck up, soldier. Let's study these time crystals. Yeah, but then she insinuated herself into the situation and got Colbert to straighten up and fly right. For now. I mean, you know, Colbert said he would do it. We'll see if that actually happens. We only have two episodes left. So I'm thinking there's going to be at least some sort of Stamets-Colbert reconciliation going on by the finale. And as much lack of tact as she had with Stamets, and that just might be from their own personal frenemy status, I thought that was actually a really nice scene between her and Colbert. It's another great opportunity that Star Trek's able to take 
uh, you know, being based in the 2010s that we have here. We have two people from two same sex relationships on a Star Trek show talking about their relationships to each other, just like their regular, you know, heterosexual relationships. Uh, I thought that was it's just it's one of those moments where you sort of take a, a step back and you sort of breathe it all in and you say, this is really cool because this is something that Star Trek would have never done, at least in the first four or five series. So I, I think that's just it's something really cool to watch just from an objective perspective. Yeah, and it's something they've always like tried to be a little more progressive on. Uh, but of course, in the first couple of series, you couldn't do that. In Deep Space Nine, you, of course, had the episode Rejoin, which is one of my favorites, surely because they did not lampshade the fact that it was a same-sex relationship at the heart of everything. Mm. Um like the problem between the problem with that pairing was that they were trills coming back from a previous life and not because they were two women in a relationship. Like nobody seemed to care about that. And I kind of loved that, you know, we were getting that. And so now that we're in an era where it's not a big deal, we can just like have a conversation about it and like, oh yeah, uh, she had a wife and he is broken up with his boyfriend slash husband were they married i don't think they were married well no i think they were because they were talking about wedding planning right yeah, they were they commiserating were yeah so i don't think he ever said he's my husband but i guess that's my assumption you know yeah they were talking about like i can't remember exactly like how together they were but Anyway, just to have this conversation and to have like the genders of the other participants in the conversation not be a deal at all, I think, is really great. Yeah, and even Reno saying people like us always find people like them, that is a very deep statement on a myriad of ways. It's not only referring to their personality types, but they happen to, you know, exist in that same sphere. And like you said, the fact that it is so nonchalant is so meaningful. That, you know, it, it just happens to be something at the center and it's about the relationship. It's not about the gender of the person that they happen to be in love with is just it's awesome. And it's a far cry than some of the stuff Star Trek was doing back in the day. So I'm, I'm always here to applaud it, even if our beloved Stamets and Culber are still on the rocks, even though, to your point, Culber's at least might be turned in the right direction. Yeah, I think he'll come around eventually. And there's one other thing about this scene that I really wanted to call attention to because I love the callback um, because there is a point where Reno checks herself into sick bay with a hangnail, mm -hmm. which is itself a shout out to an episode we just watched of the original series uh, because there is a point where McCoy gets called back to the Enterprise in the menagerie and he jokes that there's probably somebody with a hangnail. Oh, and that is the only reference to the menagerie in this episode. Thank you. Good night. <laughs> wow yeah uh i i feel like everybody probably went back if they didn't watch it before this arc they went back and watched it at some point during this arc because there's just so much like every the first time you saw pike i would imagine if you've got cbs all access anyway why not go back and watch it and of course i watched it before we had the huge shout out to it Mm -hmm. And so now all this stuff keeps like they keep going back to it and keep referring back to it. It's still stuck in everybody's heads. Yeah, I can't imagine maybe next episode if Pike ends up leaving. He's like, I've really built a menagerie of relationships <laughs> here on the ship. But being on here any longer made me feel like I was locked in a cage. 
<laughs> exactly. If you ever need me, just beep once for yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so let's talk for a second about Washing Machine Pike. Oh. Uh, I, oh, they they made it creepier. The original series one was creepy enough. This was creepier. I I honestly could talk for like half an hour about this. This not only was my favorite part of the episode, this might be one of my favorite moments of the season, let alone the series. I loved what they did with this, and I feel like this is a big feather in the cap of Discovery's choice to be a prequel to the original series, which we can still quibble with, you know, what they're doing with some of these original series characters. But I think the fact that they made Pike, not only we can definitely talk about the, the visuals, the gruesome, dark visuals that come with actually seeing what happens with the Delta radiation uh, in the rescue or in the training mission gone south. And to see what a 21st century version of Melty Pike looks like. But the fact that they now wrote this character to essentially consign himself to his own fate, to sacrifice himself to better the chances of sentient life surviving in this universe is, it really is a microcosm of what they've done with the Pike character, sketched him out of just being a pretty face that appeared in three episodes, well, not so pretty in two episodes of the original series, but <laughs> appeared in three episodes of the original series and really spent, you know, 12 episodes building up his values and who he is as a person, that all these decisions made sense. It, it, and it really illustrated and highlighted and enlightened what's going to happen chronologically down the line. I thought it was beautifully done from an acting perspective, a writing perspective, a plot-oriented perspective. I cannot talk highly enough about it. I absolutely love the choice they made here. Yeah, it was fantastic. Uh, I definitely agree. And there was so much, there's so much in there. They And they got a great actor to play Pike, which I think really sells it because Pike in the original series, and even to an extent, like every other time we've seen him, it's like, eh, oh, he's like, he's kind of like Kirk and kind of not as cool as Kirk. But they've really, they've taken a couple of moments and really opened them up pretty deeply. And I had a couple of questions that I wondered about this scene. Um, first of all, when when Pike took that time crystal, they sealed his fate. And basically, he was told that as soon as you touch the crystal, this is what's going to happen to you. And as long as you don't touch it, it's it could be one of the things that happens to you. So would that have happened with any crystal in the cave or did each crystal have a different future? Like, could he have shopped around and picked one? <laughs> I want the one where I'm rich and famous living on Talos with my lovely, lovely girlfriend. Uh, I mean, I guess I'd assume it's sort of carbon copied between them. But yeah, it is interesting because as Tenevik said, like that is a future. Maybe it's sort of like the most probabilistic future in the in the path that they're currently going and it's sort of saying right now, do you choose to continue on that path or do you want to take another one? So it's sort of saying it's like, like he's playing Bandersnatch. Yeah, basically, it's like this is your current option. You can click the button and move on or you I'm sorry, you can do nothing and move on or you can choose to, you know, eat your frosted flakes and possibly <laughs> go on a different path. Um, and you know, Pike picks Thompson twins every time. Oh, absolutely. That is his jam. Uh, to your point about Anson Mount, yeah, I mean, this also just hammers home how good of a performer he was, because this was also great, because this was the first time we, I think we saw Pike truly 
freaked out. You know, the reason why he's such a good captain to begin with is because even during the most unusual circumstances, he's come at it with a certain intensity, but he still has remained pretty calm under pressure. But the way he absolutely blanched once he let go of that time crystal after seeing that horrific futuristic vision of himself was nothing that I'd ever seen before. And again, when he goes into this monologue about, you know, you're a Starfleet captain, you believe in service, sacrifice, compassion, and love. I'm not going to abandon these things that made me what I am because of a future. It doesn't come out of nowhere. He not only represents himself, but he, to his point, represents what Starfleet stands for. And I, I just feel like it's cool to use that as a retrospective. I know he's not completely gone yet. It looks like from next episode, he might be gone pretty soon, considering he's back to his yellows. But it's cool to sort of use this as a nice little retrospective on the previous 12 episodes we've got of a guy that we really knew nothing about previously. Yeah, and to tie it into the last thing we know about him that we haven't really explored on this show. Because I mm. feel like it's sort of like, and I speak as someone who did write a lot of fan fiction back in the day. And it was my favorite thing to like take a character I knew three things about and like look into all of those things and just like blow them out deeply and like put them into perspective in the larger universe of the whatever thing I was writing the fan fiction about. And it's not important what those things were. <laughs> um, and I really love the show has done that so thoroughly and so well with this character and they've gotten a great actor to bring it all to, to life. And I think his very human reaction to knowing his fate was also just beautifully shot and so interesting as well because doesn't he, he has like a medal of honor named after him as well right and given that now we see what happens in the accident that ultimately puts him in that chair it makes a lot of sense because my god i mean we t there are some really dark moments on star trek discovery and some pretty you know violent action scenes but that felt i mean obviously i wouldn't say it felt realistic considering the circumstances but it was brutal to just yep. jump right into that. That was some Event Horizon stuff. It was it was pretty bananas. Though I, I don't know what I was expecting. I guess it was, I was expecting some sort of like Incredible Hulk-esque. He jumps in front of the radiation <laughs> to save his cadets. But no, uh, I mean, radiation I'm pretty, does not work that way. <laughs> I'm also pretty sure that girl got killed. Yeah, and imagine, imagine you're Pike, and you go into your training exercise, and you meet these cadets, and you know all of this stuff is going to happen, and you're like, oh, that's the one I'm not going to save. Yeah, and especially knowing that, again, like, you can't change it. You, in taking the crystal, you set the Mets of, you know, the pass is, is, is up to it, or, yeah, you won't be able <laughs> to change what you'll, you won't be able to change anything that will prevent those of anything down the line if you turn left instead of right you're still going to end up in that chamber at the end of the day nice eleven twenty two sixty three reference there mike yeah i guess it'll be eleven twenty two twenty two sixty three something like that <laughs> yeah that'll be we'll put james franco in a starfleet uniform and tulu take that idea and run with it it'll be sponsored by auto antonyms with friends we'll be good to go <laughs> yeah uh anything would be better than that miniseries uh which took <laughs> All of the wrong lessons off of that book. But that is a different podcast. Um, and I'm going to get so many ats just having said that. So let's go back to this for a second. I'm still not clear, like, what kind of training exercise with Starfleet cadets would put them in that kind of danger? Yeah, it's a good question, because I, I have to wonder whenever you hear about like training 
uh, you know, cadet deaths. I'm thinking about like the next gen episode where Wesley and his crew of top gun people try to pull off that really risky air maneuver and one person gets killed. I wonder if he was a bit too flashy with his cadets or it could just be that maybe Starfleet Academy didn't is not up to snuff. You know, education might have gotten cut by the big overlords. And so they couldn't afford to get a an update on the sealant for their big old container of Delta radiation. And as a result, havoc ensued. Yeah, they're still paying off the Klingon war. Yeah, that's true. Because we I mean, Anson Mount doesn't seem like he's ever going to age. It seems like he's perpetually spent time in that chamber. But, you know, it doesn't seem like that much later. And that's also a fun little, you know, uh, Wrath of Khan reference as well. When he gets blasted back to that poor little observation window where people are screaming bloody murder and he puts up, you know, a hand and his half burned off his his basically his his two face cosplay uh, doing his best Harvey Dent. And it just (laughs) it's it's graphic. And that's another great thing as well, is that. Discovery is able to do some pretty brutal visual effects in the blink of an eye, which I don't think I'll ever get the uh, image of Anson Mount's face melting out of my mind, Jess. Yeah, that was that was pretty upsetting. Uh, Although I think it's interesting you bring up Wrath of Khan because there is a very interesting parallel there as well. It looks like both of these gentlemen will end up undergoing a very similar fate. Hmm. Yeah, I guess, you know, we didn't get too much of the Spock-Pike relationship, but given the way that it's handled, you'd have to assume that maybe Spock was inspired by his former captain to take up that act of heroism. Yep, he's going to take that radiation bullet. I mean, of course, it ends very differently for Spock. That's true. There's no coming back from this. And this brings up my other point that I, I think Angela and I discussed this a little bit in your absence, but... I still don't understand, with all of the evolved technology of the 23rd century, they can turn Arium into a robot that downloads her memories to a hard drive every night. But all they can do for Pike is a washing machine that beeps once for yes and twice for no. Uh, The medical budget got cut as well. You know, again, big bolster military budget from that Klingon Federation war. They're still trying to pay off. Uh, Maybe they were mad at Pike. They said, look, you busted open the... The shoestring operation we have with our cadet trading program. So we're going to put you in this watching machine. But also, Pike is a big fan of old school stuff. You know, he said no holograms on the Enterprise. Just give me some on screen business. So maybe he personally selected his uh, his form of torture. (laughs) Is, Is this like in Ghostbusters when you get to choose the way you die? Yeah, essentially. I think he's just sort of. Picking whatever fate he'll be, you know, he'll be assigned to. Though I guess, is it because he now saw the chair, he now has to pick the chair? Again, he can't have any other choice. There's this big thing that's like, oh, it'll do your dishes, it'll communicate for you, like a Stephen Hawking type of communication device. He's like, no, I have to pick the one beep, two beep model. Yeah, and I mean, even Black Mirror envisions stuff more advanced than this. Like, they could at least put him in a teddy bear. Yeah, I mean, I guess, I don't know, Pike Pike is really doubling down on his old school methods, and that includes the way that he travels around. And, you know, he's he's not a very simple man. He's a very complicated individual, so I'm very surprised he would boil himself down to only two possible hey, responses hey, hey, to hey. anything. Boil himself down, that's a little insensitive given his face, Mike. Yes, I apologize. I should not be uh, 
bubbling anything up to the surface for him. Oh, dear. Oh, boy. Well, you know, at least it does end sort of happy for Pike. I mean, he didn't get to see the part where they let him go on Talos to be beautiful and young forever. That's true. And that also brings some, you know, maybe if you rewatch those scenes from episode eight, I believe it was, that that brings a new amount of hope to it that, okay, this will be the final place where he ends up. And he doesn't necessarily see that the time crystal uh, is a nasty bitch. Cause they just showed him all the bad stuff that's going to happen. They didn't jump ahead and say, yeah, it's going to suck for a little while, but then they're going to leave you, you know, Spock's going to break rank and leave you on this planet where you're going to be back in your body again and spend the rest of your days doing whatever, whatever you want. Well, I think the time crystal wants to be really, really clear about what he's getting into. If you, if you give him too much of the good stuff, he's going to be like, oh, this isn't too bad. Yeah, whatever, face melting. Yeah, but I get to go live on the cave with the beautiful woman. Yeah, what do you, what's like the opposite of a monkey's paw, where it's all, only bad but nothing good? <laughs> That's essentially what he's getting. Yeah, yeah, basically. He's getting the monkey's back of the hand. <laughs> the monkey's backhand. I like it. Exactly. But yeah, what, what did you think? You know, we, we talked about adding some interesting stuff to the canon with all this Pike stuff voluntarily submitting himself to this fate. But what did you make of this general idea that apparently the Klingons have a horde of time crystals that they are mining in this monastery? Well, this is not the first time we've been to Boreth in the, in the series. True. I think chronologically it may be, but... Yeah, I think, I think chronol... I mean, I guess if you count when we saw Tyler beam baby Tenevik down, but I mean, it also makes sense why, correct me if I'm wrong, in DS9, isn't that where they produce the, co- the clone of Kalos here? And that would make yeah. a, lot, a lot of sense, given that they're able to rapidly age people in a blink of an eye. Yeah, exactly. So they, this is where you can super grow your clones, apparently. Um, <laughs> it's like a little clone greenhouse. But yeah, we've seen Boreth a couple of times across the series, and it's interesting that the time crystals aren't something we talk more about. But I guess if everybody talked about them all the time, they'd always be wanting to come up with them, which brings me to another thing about the Star Trek universe, which I think is really funny, uh, that they just kind of land on there and Pike goes down and goes in and he says, hey, I need one of those time crystals. And they're like, oh, absolutely not. We don't give out the time crystals. Time crystals have to stay here. They're pretty valuable and they do a lot of really damaging stuff. You, you know, you might break something. And he's like, no, 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 no. I need to save all sentient life in the galaxy. And like, oh, OK, in that case, here you go. And this is like, how often... In the Star Trek universe, like we watch a lot of Star Trek, you know, sentient life in the universe gets threatened fairly often. Yeah, you would say so. But damn, if that Pike is not just a guy you want to let in and expose to the crystals, though, maybe they knew he was going to come to them. So he's like, you know what? This is a I took the crystal five minutes before you came here saying that you would have to come and grab a crystal. So I know (laughs) I have to do this anyway. Yeah, I know I already did it in the timeline, and they're like, oh, yeah, that checks out. Okay. Yeah, it's, it's interesting as well. I believe, is this the uh, first cold weather planet or cold weather environment we've gotten on Discovery so far? It was it was nice seeing Pike in a parka. Yeah, yeah, uh, I was a good look for him. He looked like he was ready to hit the slopes in, like, on Her Majesty's Secret Service. <laughs> That's very true. What did you make of, by the way, Tenevik... The actor who plays him is he might become one of my new favorites on Star Trek Discovery because in what is this like the 27th episode? This is the third Klingon that Mr. Kenneth Mitchell 
has played. He's played a Klingon in season one. He played that Klingon's father in the beginning of season two, and now he's playing Tenevik. Uh, he has a type. He certainly does. Uh, and I guess, like, once you're really good at being a Klingon, I guess you get to be a lot of Klingons. Is he going to be like the Jeffrey Combs of Star Trek Discovery? Well, I wonder if it's like we have the mold already fitted to your face for the Klingon stuff. It's just, frankly, easier if we keep bringing you in. That could also be true. Like, yeah, you put I, a lot of effort into that. Yeah, but I think he he did a, a good job. Uh, I think it is interesting that they had this, you know, representation of Laurel and Tyler's son all grown up. So we're able to hopefully tie that knot a little bit that he's like, P.S., I'm fine. Thanks, Dad. Your torchbird insignia was something that inspired me, even if you weren't here. I got my own business. You guys are good to go and go your separate ways. I hope so. But I, I thought it was it was interesting to just a very interesting way to introduce that time concept as well. That, hey, uh, this grown up albino Klingon, he happens to be the one albino Klingon that we know besides the one that has been morphed into Ash Tyler. Yeah, well, there was a lot of speculation because there's another albino Klingon out in the Star Trek universe. Right. I do remember that there's been speculation as to whether Tenevik was the al the albino is the name of it, right? Yeah, they call him the albino. He's the one that uh, Kankor and Koloth were always trying to get. I wonder, this was recurring in DS9. Well, I wonder if, and this could be another reason why they don't mention the time crystals again, could there be something where Control or Section 31 or something blows up the monastery? And so that destroys all the time crystals, brings some big stakes to the one that Discovery has, simultaneously also killing Tenevik or putting Tenevik on a new path where he does become the albino? I think you have to do a lot of... I Excuse my language. You have to do a lot of fan wanking to get that one to work. That's true. That's true. I, I don't put it past Discovery. I just think that this is a treasure trove of things. And to the point that you made before, what's going to stop them from going back there at another time to be like, hey, uh, I have a hangnail. Time crystal, please. Yeah, I, I have a feeling that that's the reason that they're pretty stingy with them in the first place. They're like, yeah, all sentient life in the galaxy, sure. That's what they said. That's what the guy said last week. We gave him a time crystal, and it turned out he just wanted to go back and, like, get his dad to beat up the school bully and get his parents <laughs> together so that he'd be a little bit cooler. Yes, that that Cadet McFly, he's always up to trouble. He was hanging back on the uh, the starship Galileo as it was pulling out of the planet. He's a slacker. And, you know, no McFly ever amounted to anything. Just don't call him chicken, especially in the cafeteria. He'll go totally colber on you. It's, it's, it's true. It's true. You thought your hangnail was bad. You just you wait. <laughs> I, I just think it's I mean, the, the whole bullet aesthetic was super interesting. It was very like at least I got images of Rivendell. Maybe that's just from my sense of where I where the orbits I'm in in pop culture planets, but the the way it was structured with the towering, uh, you know, very pale structures and the crystals and everything and the big old stone chambers. That that's my first thought when I actually saw a bullet. Yeah, well it looks to me like the inside of uh the Sagrada Familia in Barcelona, which is kind of that same like cathedral aesthetic with this sort of nature flavor to it mm. and i guess that does make sense then from like a religious perspective and it is interesting it feels like a while since we've gone back to that sort of religion and faith angle even though michael has 
promptly swung back to the man of science side of things after she discovered, you know, after she basically had to watch her mother disappear after seeing her for like two hours. Yeah, that Michael was definitely. She was at a she was at a crossroads this episode. Yeah, which I understand and I'm excited for. I'll admit I was a little nervous about sending Gabrielle back because Sinequa Martin Green is fantastic. And I love this is weird to say, but I love when she emotes. I love it when it's not just her standing, delivering dialogue straight, living up to her Vulcan upbringing. I loved I didn't say I, I love watching her heart get torn apart, but I felt like she showed how capable of an actress she was the past two episodes. And I was nervous that we were going to just go back to, you know, her receding back into her shell. And we got that to a certain point, but now she's less self-sacrificing and now she is more about revenge, baby. Right. And put her together with Spock this episode. And you give her some interesting ground to play off of emotionally speaking, because next to Spock, she's always going to be the more emotional one. Mm. And she's also her relationship with Spock enables her to go to some different emotional places. And so to put them together on this mission was a very inspired choice, I think. Especially because she did not want him to go on the mission. And, you know, the fact that they're spatting together and that, again, Spock's coming from this very man of faith side of things of, look, there's got to be a reason why these signals are happening. She's like, look, there's no connection. Okay. It's just random. Uh, You know, this, it really screams of, when somebody loses a close loved one and it makes you have a crisis of faith, so to speak, where you say, you know, why did this happen to this person? Clearly events in the world might just be random, you know, F the world, let's get high. And I think she's really (laughs) importing that onto Spock before she realizes that she is, despite all the shenanigans and the insistence of control that she cannot stop anything, she might be a bigger variable than she thinks. Yeah. Well, the one thing I really loved about this episode, and I think the one thing that really propels it above, like over and above even a great episode of Discovery like the one last week, this one was so fun because at first you went into it with the expectation, like the way they started talking was like, oh, here we go. We're going to go back to the, we're going to go back to the red signals again. We're going to go talk about that some more. We're going to go away from the main plot and take another side quest and we'll have the Klingons and this and that. But then it turned out that that was a total fake out and we were still very, very much into the main plot. Yeah. I really enjoyed that as well. That again, you know, they feel that, and I guess time will tell <laughs> as to whether or not the signal appeared above Borth to get a time crystal, or maybe this is all, I don't know. I'm starting to ascribe more to Ash Tyler's theory where every time something happens, he's like, but it could be a trap. You never know. I'm starting to buy more into his Tyler tinfoil hat theories that maybe this is some sort of evil entity that's setting up. Maybe it, maybe control is putting the signals out there to purposely lead them down the path that they want to. Well, if control was doing it like that, that seems very weird because they do make the point that all the signals they've seen up to this point have given them, like pushed them in a direction to do something benevolent. And if control was doing it, control would probably put them in danger. Like, why go to all the trouble of setting up like seven signals in the sky that involve you saving people and going on missions if your ultimate goal is just to destroy all sentient life? But Michael had that conversation with control where, to your point, she said, 
why are you trying to eviscerate life when your goal is to protect life? And they said, you know, one will segue into the other. Maybe it was sort of control figuring things out and saying like, okay, we'll start with some good stuff. Oh, wait, what's this thing? That's t- what's the devil on my shoulder telling me to do something different and we'll guide them towards, I don't know, maybe the next signal will be like, great, now blow up this planet. Uh, you know, basically educating discovery down the path of darkness. I'm not entirely sure, but I, I don't know. Maybe I'm just hesitant to believe that there is a good entity that is guiding discovery on these signals. Considering all the evil that they are evading, I would not be surprised if something was trying to lead them down a path that they're not entirely sure of yet. Well, I think you have to be skeptical of any message where you don't know the source of the sender. I mean, that's just email 101. But it's also like they're making them go pretty far out of their way to save people and save lives. And also the conversation she had with Control made no sense. And Control's like, oh, no, no, I got it all figured out. I'm just going to destroy everything to bring everything back. It's like, no, it doesn't work that way. If you destroyed everything, it's not there anymore. You can't bring it back. And I thought that was just a Control is still not really fully gelling for me as a villain because it just seems like oh rar my whole purpose is to destroy everything it's like it's like a dalek it's like exterminate exterminate and like okay so why like what's your point control and i'm having i'm having a little bit of a hard time with that mm. um oh, yeah i'm i'm a bit higher than you just because what the the reappearance of gant or so we thought he was Gant, the faux Gant, is that I feel like Discovery stumbled upon something that could have been a really cool full season arc, which is this idea of someone could be behaving completely as normal, but it turns out that they are under control, that they have been... DS9 did it. Yeah, well, I was going to say, like, it's it's some, it's some there's that, there's the Cylon thing, even if you're going to, like, the superhero side of things, there's the scroll stuff that's been talked about in the recent Captain Marvel, but I feel like there is something there that could come about with, like, paranoia, and maybe there's still a chance that even if they've destroyed control, there's still one person who's been, you know, infected by it and uh, is, is trying to perpetuate its journey from within the ship or something. But otherwise, yeah, I agree. I'm not, especially, it, it probably also wasn't helped that this was brought up as an antagonist, what, like, the past two episodes it does feel like a late game push to have this be the big new villain that we need to outwit this AI system. What do you make of Michael apparently still being Michael's reasoning, at least that, oh, it must want to kill me because I'm the key to destroying it still. I'm the one thing that can prevent us from that. The worst timeline. Well, it sure seems like. They could have – there's some other reason they want her, I think, because they could have tried a little harder to kill her. Yeah, I was going to say, they were just – I mean, if they said – It's they, like a James Bond villain. Yeah, well, they said, you know, I can break your metacarpal so easily, and he's struggling trying to stab a needle in her eye. Like, that That seems like two varying strains over the course of two minutes. Yeah, it's it's very true, and – it it just seems like I think control is a lot weaker. Like control talks a good game. Mm. I don't think control is anywhere near as all powerful as it wants everybody to believe because we've seen it struggle in these ways. And it's also how do you defeat a big computer? Apparently, you defeat it with a really big magnet. <laughs> yeah, magnets, bitch. 
oof, magnets, my one weakness. It's like, oh, okay. It's, yeah, it's, it's very interesting because I thought at first it was Spock rebooting the system because that was the plan, right? They talked about yeah. another cage was, okay, we're essentially going to lay some juicy bait into one of the sectors, have control go in there and then shut the firewall behind it. But no, Spock just magnetized the floor so all these nice little iron filings of uh, nanotech just are remained are uh, rendered inert uh, without s- extending their nice little tendrils into Michael Burnham. Yeah, and I love that their trap was like, we're just going to create another folder on the computer and call it really, really important stuff. And of course, control will be drawn to that because who wouldn't? Now, like, call it like live hot nude computers and control's like, oh yeah, give me that. Now, I guess the question is, are th- is this nanotech rendered inactive? Because I wonder, if not, could they have, like, I don't know, bottled some of it, brought it back to Stamets or the crew, and they could sort of dissect what it's made of. Maybe they could turn it on their side to attack the other nanotech. I'm not entirely sure, but you have to feel that's a missed opportunity if you just let it be on the ship, right? Well, I feel like if you're not sure exactly what it's made of, you don't know exactly how to contain it. So if you scoop some up and put it in a vial, what if it escapes that vial and, like, assimilates you? Mm, that's true. I mean, they, I guess they, they were also sort of minding their P's and Q's after the whole mycelial incident where they thought they had it captured, but that it still infected Tilly, and then she got trapped in a cocoon. So they're probably uh, just sort of letting sleeping dogs, magnetized dogs, lie as they were. Yeah, I'm thinking they also know that, you know, they can contain this bit, but there's more control out there Mm. and something else is going on. They got bigger fish to fry. It's like, well, this stuff isn't going to bother us. So let's maybe just not bother it. Mm. And to your point about before (laughs) Section 30 uh, controls, you know, uh, writing checks that its ash might not be able to cash. It does seem that that's the reason why it took over Leland was that, you know, it's essentially working from the top down. Of, I don't need to possess people in the lower ranks. I just need to possess people in the higher ranks because they'll follow their orders. I mean, and I, I know I asked this last week in terms of now that the home base has been, everyone's become popsicles and we see more popsicles this episode as well. Where are they sort of taking orders from? I guess it's our assumption that Leland is is now the de facto head of Section 31 with con- in control's absence and is essentially giving orders to all these other ships of, hey, go find these guys. Yeah, I think so. But now I want to talk about this whole thing because this doesn't make any sense to me on a couple of levels. Um, one thing I thought was really funny is the line about, oh, there's 30 ships, almost their entire fleet. So are there just 31 ships? Is that why it's called Section 31? I think that's the rule. I think I, I don't know which came first, the name or the number of ships. I really hope it's the former because I would love them to say, nope, we only have thir- we can only have 31 ships. There can only be 31 crew members on each ship. Uh, I don't know. There can only be 31 channels on the televisions in each room. We live our lives by 31 now. How many flavors of ice cream do their replicators make? Yeah, listen, uh, that has nothing on Baskin Robbins. I think that unfortunately was a major downgrade with their replicators. Man, you know, this future just looks bleaker and bleaker. Especially if you're Section 31. That's really going to be the focus of the spinoff is uh, people just trying to conform their lives to living things. Thirty-one. Their months, they have a weird calendar. All their months have 31 days and only 31 days. (laughs) 
Jeez. But yeah, that was, that was, I thought it was cute that they have 30 ships appeared. And of course, the one that Michael and Spock destroyed was the 31st. Yep, that makes sense. So they're going to have to like commandeer another ship and have that one be. It's like Air Force One. Well, maybe they're hoping that Discovery will be number 31 because that's a that's a heck of a catch. Yeah, that's it's a pretty great ship. So here's my other question about this. Why is why is the crew of Discovery so quick to jump to the conclusion that they need to like shoot it off into the future and destroy it? If they could just if they have a spore drive, they have a freaking spore drive. They could go anywhere in the galaxy. And so Section 31 might try to find him. So just jump somewhere that's going to take them a long ass time to get there. Yeah, it is. I totally agree that they are so they are so effortless with the spore drive. It is so interesting that after episode five, we're like, wow. I wonder what long-term ramifications will be now that Stamets knows that every time he was jumping, he was unintentionally destroying this ecosystem. Nope! They just, they, 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 they did a black alert to Boreth. They're totally fine with it still, without even with the implications. And yeah, I think that while Michael does make this point of like, no matter where we run, they're going to be following us at every pursuit. And this is a way for them to sort of, you know, just cut the carrot off from the stick. At the same time, you do have other methods of escaping and that does buy you enough time to re-energize this time crystal to find the supernova that you want to also aren't are they in klingon territory you'd have to imagine that 30 enemy ships or section 31 ships appearing would at least perk up their ears a bit right yeah you would think like maybe that's maybe that's the plan all along like maybe just get the klingons really cheesed off at the section 31 ships and get them to destroy all of them maybe that's why we don't have a section 31 for such a huge chunk of the star trek timeline i would not be surprised if this ends with section 31 basically getting eviscerated due to controls actions and the spinoff whenever it comes focuses on them building from the ground up which actually speaking of which super interesting this episode was written by uh Bo-Yan kim and erica lippolt who are going to be the showrunners of Section 31. So it's very clear that it's on their minds. Oh, that's exciting. Yeah, I thought that they they have done an amazing job with this episode. It makes me more excited for the Section 31 show, which I maybe wasn't before. But it, it is an interesting trope. Like, I know they've done this three or four times in the James Bond universe where they just destroy the entire spy network and then they have to rebuild in secret. Hmm. Yeah, I, and I could very much see that happen, which would be interesting from a futuristic perspective. I don't know, maybe we'll see Section 31 agents set up a bunch of Home Alone-esque traps around <laughs> the one ship they have left as a bunch of marauders come in. But I'd I'd be interested in that more. I'd be interested in the Giorgio-led startup of Section 31 than sort of the operation we have right now. So I guess now that we sort of see that means to an end maybe i'm back on board with section 31 i'll admit i was a bit off track i felt like we were getting so much section 31 but now that i'm seeing that maybe there is this sort of end goal that controls plans just ends up i mean they are just killing so many section 31 operators by the ship full that you know they're gonna end up with nobody by the end of it and then assumingly get destroyed it could be an interesting way to start things off yeah, and you, since you have to be pretty super special to get recruited by Section 31 in the first place, it's like they're just killing off all the best and brightest. Yeah, and it's interesting also to get not Gant's uh, perspective on why he signed up for Section 31, which I don't know if this was Gant's true thing, if uh, Control was able to assimilate that from his mind, or if it just sort of made it up about how, 
you know, uh, Section 31 essentially accelerated their threat program after a uh, threat assessment program. It's a threat now, but threat assessment program after the battle of the ban- binary stars. And he wanted to guarantee a safer future. Again, this Section 31 stuff, it just I mean, I know it wasn't created specifically for this, but it's it's really speaking a lot to me, at least of that early 2000s Patriot Act, mm-hmm. you know, Guantanamo Bay stuff. And that's the stuff I really want to explore because those are really interesting topics from a, from a moral perspective, from a, a government perspective, from a policy perspective. And, you know, when you have Ash Tyler there, he's completely off the Section 31 train, it seems. But when he was talking earlier about how, you know, he lives in a gray area, they live in a gray area, so it's a natural fit. Uh, I just thought there was some really interesting stuff that I want to dig into a bit more, more so than I wanted to dig into the, hey, there's a computer system that's now, you know, taking over this entire operation that has only 31 ships. Well, yeah, setting aside the fact that, you know, this villain is a computer system, like without even thinking about what the villain is, it is interesting to hear that speech about how he sees this force as something with the potential to make everybody safer. And so it doesn't really matter what the means are to get to that end. Mm. And even though he even though it's like we all know it's like an evil thing, we see that why people might be motivated by fear to follow it. Yeah. And especially with something like the Federation Klingon War, which while, you know, we did see parts of they really they really bring up moments that reflect the brutality of it. I mean, we saw Jet Reno's wife died during the Federation Klingon War. And you can imagine when something happens like that, you say, I don't want that to ever happen again. How can we make sure that it doesn't? And if you're sold a bill of goods when you're at that heightened level of emotional of emotionality, if you are not angry, if you're like Michael Burnham and you are enraged, it causes you to do things that might cross a line that ordinarily will keep you in bounds if you are in a calmer state of mind. Yeah, certainly that's a common theme across Star Trek. Yeah, so I'm, I'm hopeful that they bring it up here, Jen. It gives me exciting prospects. Do you really think that Discovery is going to get destroyed next episode? Well, this was kind of the last thing I wanted to bring up with you, Mike, because there we're talking about uh we've talked a lot about the different references the different callbacks to the short treks that have come out and the one short trek we haven't really gotten anything about is calypso and i wonder if discovery's computer enhanced by control plus the sphere data is this how zora evolves to become a self-aware being yeah i think i could completely see this you know i think angela and i had uh, theorized that maybe they would leave the time crystal aboard the ship and so that Gabrielle Burnham would find it 950 years into the future so that she could eventually power the suit back up. But I could totally see a thing where the ship doesn't necessarily get destroyed. It just sort of gets abandoned. Maybe, you know, Section 31's like, hey, they're in that shuttle craft after them, completely chases after Discovery, leaves an inert, and as a result, this... AI data is just left to sort of develop. I think it is super interesting because, you know, I think that <laughs> talking with the, the writer of the short tracks, I think he even admitted that the, the futuristic ideas, even the future of the futuristic ideas, the fact that it took place 950 years in the future just sort of came out on a whim. And now it's really turned into something that might be a big part 
of the future of Star Trek and where we're going to go in the next couple of episodes. But I mean, I can't imagine it being destroyed. I can't imagine Star Trek Discovery not taking place on a ship named Discovery. Yeah, well, we could have the Discovery 2. I mean, how many times have we destroyed the Enterprise? Yeah, that's true. That's the Discovery D. Yeah, sure. The Discovery Discovery Q. Yeah, I, I could I could definitely see that. And maybe they'll say like, oh, this one-of-a-kind vessel was destroyed, so I guess we're going to have to downgrade you to a vessel that looks more like the 60s. Uh, that'll be interesting <laughs> as well. If we go to the... Because sure. uh, I saw some yellow shirts next time. If we go back to the Bridge of the Enterprise, now we'll, we'll have to do some uh, cross-comparisons with how they're able to create an updated look to the original series. Yeah, and I'm really loving what they're doing with that, um, making it still feel like it's in our era, but also not making it feel totally incongruous with the what, what, what we've seen of the 60s uniforms. Yeah, exactly. It's like it's basically like how can we embody that aesthetic while at the same time looking into a very you know, into a, how it would be done in the 21st century. Gersha Phillips is an awesome costume designer, and I feel like that shows in spades considering all the different eras and species she's had to cover over the course of this season alone. Yeah. And you know, I thought I was done buying Star Trek uniforms, but I might be back in on these, on these updated original series looks. Mm, I was going to say you weren't going to go for the uh, blue and gold of disco. The blue and gold of disco is serviceable, but I really love what they're doing with these, like, new old Enterprise ones. Yeah, I mean, I love the disco uniforms as well. I'm a big fan of blue and gold, but I, I kind of, I don't know. It's so interesting considering the uniformity of it all as compared to the pops of color we get from the various characters aboard the Enterprise that when you get a sleep, you're like, oh, I miss that. You know, everyone's pulling off the looks pretty well on Discovery, but I, I want to see, see some accessories going on to showcase their individuality. Yeah, I, I sort of wondered, are they all in blue and gold because Discovery was at its core a science vessel? Hmm. Interesting. So it's sort of like, oh, they're wearing like the de facto science officer uniform. Right. They don't have like they don't have like the exploration set of color coded roles and stuff because they're just a science vessel and they can all wear science blue. Interesting. Because, well, what about someone like Commander Non, who is the tactical officer even if she's a tactical officer aboard a science vessel, does she still have to wear the science uniform? Well, sure, sure. Uh, but I guess they did end up being pretty instrumental to the war, even though they were supposed to be a sleepy science vessel in the first place. Yeah, that's true. So they're like, listen, we'll do it, but we need more uniforms. Give us the colorful ones. Yeah, well, and you can replicate whatever uniforms you want. So I feel like... It's very it's getting more and more complicated to explain why different ships have different uniforms. And I thought they had a hard enough time with it when Deep Space Nine updated the uniform look. And then it was like, well, everybody on Voyager isn't going to know about that. So they have to wear the old uniforms till the end of time. And now, like, when does TNG switch over? Like, which movie are they going to do it in? And they're going to have to have a conversation about it. And it became this whole thing. I think it was just even enough of a thing when Picard switched over from his regular uniform to wearing that like suede jacket with the undershirt <laughs> oh and civilian clothes like don't get me started on star trek civilian clothes yeah i i love when but that's the thing i love about the the disco characters is when they break out like when i think michael were civvies when she went to visit sarek and amanda right like i'm, I'm pretty like i enjoy 
those little pops. So maybe that's another reason why they do it. It's because like when they're down on the planet, either undercover or dressed to engage with the species, it's it's really powerful because then they're not in their usual uniform that we see. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, all of those like for for years, the Star Trek showrunners always thought that people in the future don't have collars on any of their clothing. Yeah, listen, collars are out now. There's no white collar. There's no blue collar. They're all no collars. Wow. Wow. Everybody's got the red buffs. Yeah, exactly. Everyone lives like Joey Amazing. (laughs) Well, so, Mike, is there anything else we need to bring up before we go too far down a survivor rabbit hole? A couple of quick things. One, do we think this is a wrap on, I wouldn't say Laurel and Tyler as characters, but Laurel and Tyler's relationship. It does seem that Laurel has taken some time away to be like, I understand you're not Vogue. You're in love with Michael Burnham. Okay, thanks. Bye. I feel like Laurel got over some stuff this episode. I think she's definitely ready to move on. Um, I think she has moved on was kind of the point there. I think you're right. Um, and I think the last thing they needed to know was that their son was Okay. And they got that. They're like, oh, he led a very purposeful life. And they even gave him a good name. Okay, great. Yeah. It did, yeah, because I think that, you know, if Laurel's connections that she had personally were to Voke and to her son, and now that she knew that at least one would be intact, she could, she could sort of cut the other free and say, all right, I'm good with this. And that also resolves the weird Ash, Michael, Laurel love triangle. Uh, I will also say Michael had a pretty good reaction to the whole revelation about uh, Ash Tyler or slash Vogue having a son. She's uh, pretty sympathetic to that. Well, yeah, I think she understands she's been on the other side of that with uh, having to lose your family. And I think she gets that, you know, no parents are going to willingly give up their child because they don't love it. Mm. That's and she true. understands that bond and like what happens when that bond is severed and how rough that is on everybody. And who would have thought that members of both those families would have issues with navigating timelines on both ends? You know, if two of them ever had a kid, look out. Oh, boy, that would be a family tree that's just continually knotted around its stuff. Uh, one final thing I want to talk about, the cinematography of Star Trek Discovery is always interesting, but they were doing some really interesting things with... Uh, camera placements and crossfades like when they opened on Gabrielle giving you know one of the many messages that they recovered in the suit and Michael's looking at it it's this interesting thing where they overlay Sonia Stone's face with Sonequa Martin Green's which I think is a nice sort of symbolism of mother and daughter past present future etc but the other one I'm not sure if you caught this Jess there was a delightful crossfade from Saru's face to a rock that looked a lot like his face as they what? went on to as they went on to Boreth. I entirely missed this. Yeah, I think look, I think it's like if you YouTube like Saru Rock, you can probably <laughs> see it's a ten, it's a real ten second crossfade. It's from when Saru tells Michael like, "Yeah, I've got my B, big D energy still, and I'm still the captain. So yeah, you go on your mission, do whatever you want to, take Spock with you." And it crossfades to our first the camera panning over Boreth. And it just shows this craggy rock that sort of looks like uh, an angsty Saru face. It's delightful. Well, you know, 
Saru's no stranger to weird cargo cults. Like, he should go down to Boreth and, like, start a new religion. Yeah, it's interesting that, you know, I did love the fact that Pike went down there. Uh, I, I totally agree. Like, I I was shouting the same thing when I saw this for the first time. And you have Tyler and Laurel going back and forth. And you never want to be in a room with a couple when they argue. It's just super awkward. And so I totally felt with Pike. And he's like, you know what? I'll go. I'm going to go. I, just, like, stop <laughs> arguing and Klingon. Please, I'll, I'll go. Let's Let's end this. Yeah, and I, I I know that he, I think the Im- implication was he didn't understand a word of that. He's just like, okay, I, I get the get the gist of it. Yeah, he could have, they could have been saying like, hey, let's yell really loudly so that the human volunteers to go. <laughs> Amazing. I, I would have liked that better. <laughs> that would have been very, I mean, this was probably by default one of the best Klingon episodes of Discovery in general, but that just would have been the icing on top of the cake uh, the of 31 flavors. I really have to give Discovery props because in previous iterations of Star Trek, anytime they were coming up on a Klingon episode, I would just like roll my eyes and like, please, can we get back to the other stuff? But I'm I'm here for all of the Klingon angsty drama. And I think my favorite part of all of it is that anytime they start talking to each other in Klingon, the subtitles are in all caps yeah. because everything you say in Klingon is in all caps. Yeah. And I do. I like you and Rob was not a huge fan of the third episode that we went back to that. Well, especially given that the Federation Klingon war is over. But you know what? I'm glad that we saw Laurel back. I think Mary Chifo is great. And I think her character represents a lot of great things. I'm happy that we're sort of done with the dynamic between her and Tyler now, and I'm hopeful when we go back there, we can deal with more interesting themes of what Laurel, like a chancellor, is like, given her gender and her role. Uh, You know, I talked about this last week, but given the propensity of female characters in leadership roles and discovery specifically, I think it's always that the third episode, what I appreciated was them approaching that facet. So hopefully now that she has ditched the guy she can go on, she can let her hair down as she has already done and is ready to rule over the high council with an iron fist. I mean, everybody else is getting a spinoff series. Can Mary Chifo get her own spinoff series about the Klingons? I actually would love to see her if she ends up joining Section 31. Maybe she gets run out of Konos or something and uh, joins Giorgio. You know, they were really fun together in the third episode. Maybe that's something they could do, too. Yeah, I, I feel like there's a violent coup in the Klingon Empire pretty much every other day. So yeah, one I, of these I'm, days I'm she's going to be on the wrong end of it. I'm very surprised that Laurel left. Uh, she must have like real faith in whoever she left behind to to rule over the the council because last time we saw them they were sharpening their knives as soon as as soon as her back was turned. Yeah, she's gonna come back and it's gonna be all wrecked. It's like they had a party while she was out. Yeah, now she has to clean up. Yeah, it's the worst. All right. So, Mike, I think with all that, I think we can close the book on this episode and we're into the home stretch. I think we got two episodes left, right? Yeah, this really snuck up on us. I cannot believe we only have two episodes left. That being said, in terms of plot, so much has happened in these past four or so episodes that I can I cannot imagine what more is going to happen in the next two. But I mean, we'll talk about it next week. I think this finale is going to have a lot to live up to considering the implications of the season one finale, but knowing discovery, I'm sure they'll be able to stick the landing, whatever that landing might be. I mean, personally, I'm just excited that we're kind of back in the throes of uh, totally bonkers discovery. Yeah. I was about to say, I, I missed one thing I missed out on is that, you know, you had been uh, jonesing for it and it really felt like episode 10 on has been back in bonkers discovery land. So I guess we can count on like, 
the back half of seasons from now on. Maybe the, maybe the showrunner that's going to be going alongside Alex Kurtzman for season three will change that game, but I think that's to be expected now from Discovery. We're two for two on that. Yeah, I mean, for the whole first half of the season, I feel like we were downshifting and it was a more episodic, more meditative kind of series. And now we're back full throttle, like crazy revelations and, you know, lots of old throwback stuff made new again. And, you know, you think this is a side quest, but it's not. And I, I'm here for all of it. I, I want to see the cataclysmic conclusion that we are inevitably being led into. And that, again, goes back to what I was saying before, where I think what season two has done nicely, even though it's felt a bit disparate from the beginning of season to now, is that I think it was able to transition a bit to combine more conventional elements of classic Star Trek mixed in with the zaniness and twistiness that is now known for Star Trek Discovery. And I think... The Pike stuff is a great example of that. We are addressing something that has already been canonized, but also providing some fun twists and turns in it that is character-based and makes sense, but is also super meaningful. So, again, I wanted to bring it back to that scene because I just think it was absolutely brilliant. Probably one of my favorite of the series so far. Yeah, I'm with you on that 100%. Uh, I feel like everybody involved with this show really deeply loves and respects Star Trek. And even at its weirdest moments, it keeps coming back to that love at its core. Yes, more than 31 people love Star Trek that are working on it right now. Yes, absolutely. Um, so I think I think we are pretty much finished talking about this week's episode. And so I wanted to just call your attention to all of the other fun things that are happening out in the world of post-show recaps and the greater Rob as a podcast universe. Um, Mike Bloom, I understand you are very, very busy out in the world covering TV shows for RHAP and elsewhere. Yes. Yeah, so uh, you can always follow me at a Mike Bloom type to catch wind of all the stuff that I'm doing. I'm covering RuPaul's Drag Race and Survivor right now in RHAP. I've been doing a bunch of stuff for THR.com, including some Star Trek Discovery stuff, Parade.com, comic book resources. But Jess, speaking of 31, guess what's ah. coming upon us? Oh, it is a delicious flavor that I cannot wait to put in my belly. <laughs> so, yeah, well, for those that are uh, of the uninitiated for CBS reality specifically, if you're fo focusing on only this type of CBS shows, uh, what, what do people have to look forward to, Jess, in the next couple of weeks? Actually, the day before Discovery Season 2 ends. Yeah, it's just it's just nonstop. Um, we are getting season 31 of The Amazing Race is about to premiere on CBS. Super surprise announcement. This information got dropped on us this week that they're moving up the premiere date, I guess, because Million Dollar Mile was disappointing slog. Yeah, and it did not so go now, the distance. No, it did not. Uh, it was stopped in one of the early laps. And so Amazing Race is back and it's a cast of entirely reality alumni and this enrages some people and it makes other people deeply happy and no matter which way you feel about it i think strong feelings make for a good season and so mike and i are going to be covering that along with rob sestrinino over on rob's podcast and i understand mike's probably going to be also covering it for other outlets mm -hmm. that's the uh that's the official not confirmed <laughs> confirmed not confirmed status at the moment i'm sure we'll have more updates of that over the next couple weeks but yeah it's a it'll be a fun little switch over for the two of us it'll be a fun week 
to cover both the Amazing Race premiere and the Discovery finale. It'll feel like we're jumping around our own timelines, basically grabbing a bunch of CBS crystals and, you know, going to the beginnings and ends of all these shows. Yeah, I I feel like I've just plucked a whole time crystal bouquet. (laughs) Lovely. Well, hopefully it's not of all different timelines or you'll have a really nice nosebleed. Yeah, I'm going to be like the yellow card man all up in here. Oh, no. (laughs) And nobody wants that. Um, But one thing everybody wants is for us to end this podcast now. So Mike Bloom is found on Twitter and elsewhere at a Mike Bloom type. You can find me on Twitter at Haymaker Hattie. We love to hear from you about Star Trek and all these other bonkers things we just talked about. So thanks again, Mike, for going through all this crazy ride through time and space with me. Thanks to all of you for tuning in and we'll talk to you next week. 